0: I'm going to jump in and read God's word today. As you'll know, we've been in the season of Lent and we're into the very last one in our our kind of themes this week. And this week we're reading from Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. So if you have a Bible on you, why don't you grab that now? If not, I'm just going to read it. This is the word of the Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We thank God for his word, as it still speaks to us today. We're in the last session of Lent. And we've been learning to seek, wait long, anticipate, confess, and contend until he comes. That's been the themes over the last number of weeks. And we finish off today with perhaps what is the most ultimate end of them all, being alive. What is it to be alive? Normally when we ask questions like this, our first port of call is to science. But interestingly, when it comes to life, biologists do not agree on a definition of life. However, The thing we use more often than the definition are the characteristics of life or the signs of life, as many of you might know them. Now, lots of them have big words uh, going on, so I'm not going to start wheeling those off this morning. But in short, they could be translated as this, movement, reproduction, sensitivity, growth, respiration, excretion, and nutrition. These are what it looks like to be alive, according to biologists, except it's not, is it? These are only half the story. In our time, in our culture, we have become used to people making the distinction between being alive and living. This is, after all, the age of living my best life, where to be truly living, there's this expectation not just of being alive, but what our lives should look like. One blog wrote it like this. The really accomplished, the ones people talk about, are those who have actually learned how to truly live those who did more than just breathe in and out because there's a huge difference between being alive and living. To be alive is to be stagnant, is to let the current drag you through the rhythms and motions as you hold your breath. It's standing still on the escalator that perpetually moves upwards. It's letting people pull you towards the finish line, your body flopping unconsciously against the ground. Living is something completely different. Living is taking someone's breath away, losing your breath at moments and forgetting to breathe. It's almost the opposite of being alive because living will always be closer to death. Our culture says we need to be living, not just alive, right? There's more than just being alive, and we need to do it. And the thing is that by just about every statistical measure, that there there has never been a better time to be alive than the one you're in right now. The world has never been safer. It's never been freer from disease, illiteracy. It's had greater access to clean water and electricity, and on and on and on and on and on, except knowing that the world has never been better Just doesn't line up with our experience of the world, does it? Especially not right now. John Stott said this. He said that sometimes I wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. Here's the thing Stott wrote that in 1979. And since then, those of us who are millennials, have lived through the devastation of 9-11 while we were teenagers, the global economic crisis while we were young adults, and now the coronavirus pandemic while we're grown-ups and and parents ourselves. And at this stage, we're now absolutely terrified of what it might mean to be middle-aged, right? Like, what's coming next? Here's the thing. Every age, every generation probably feels exactly the same about the world that they grew up in our sense of dread, gloom, distress about the world that we're in. And now that we're in the media age streaming every conceivable evil disaster and suffering into our hands 24 hours a day, the thing is that we just end up calloused. We've never been more exposed. We've never been better informed. And yet we've never felt more detached. Like we'll watch the news at tea time and in that news we will watch the suffering of people thousands of miles away and right after we finish it we'll just switch over the TV and watch videos of cats. The problem of looking at our own moment in culture is that it's a blurred sense of vision because it's too close to get any sort of perspective. Like I can't step back far enough from the world that I'm in right now to see things as they truly are. And it's all a question of perspective. And Paul in his writing to the Ephesians brings the truest perspective of them all on this life. This is what he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul is taking us to the depths. You're dead. At this point, you're realizing that this is not the uplifting and motivational start to today's service that you were perhaps expecting, right? Like you're looking around saying, flip sake, Dave, I sent the talk on to my whole family and you're hitting us with death and the depths right away, right? You can't hide from it, okay? Uplifting, no. Motivational, yes. Hopefully, we're going to get to hope a little bit later on, right? But this is where Paul starts. He starts in the depths. And the thing is that it's important to start at the depths because one of the unique and incredible pillars of our faith is that we don't stay in the depths, but rather that God's presence, his moving toward and meeting us at the cross in the depths of our humanity is the very reason that I place my trust in his raising me to the heights of living the life that's really life. His presence with me in the depths of this life are the reason I believe him for the heights of his promises. We long to be truly alive, don't we? And Paul says that to be alive, we have death, love, and destiny. That's the three things we're going to look at today. Death, love, and destiny. The first of those is death. And I'm going to start that with a confession, right? I cannot stand The Office, okay? Not the office that I work in, the TV show, The Office. I cannot stand it, right? A lot of you have now just decided that you're going to switch off your TV, right? Here's what I mean, okay? It's not that I don't like it, right? Or I don't find it funny, because I do. It's just that I cannot stand the sheer level of awkward in the show. I'm one of those people that really struggles. I just feel like curling in on myself when I watch it. The sheer cringiness of it all is too much for me. Like, I'm out, right? And there's this little bit of reaction going on in the passage that we just read. This is how verses one to three read. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. Here's the thing, right? Lots of the English translations, particularly early ones, like the revised version or the authorized version, they started with, and you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins. In other words, it was just too awkward. It was too much. It's too long to wait for the positive action of God that doesn't come until verse 5. And the major feature of this section in Ephesians 2 is this reality. Living equals death. This is the starting point of our living and Paul aims it sharply at everyone, right? This brokenness is in us all. He's not interested in singling out some particularly bad or ostentatious person or group or people. He's not interested in singling out or vilifying. The problem is all of us. The condition is universal. We're dead. And we're dead because of trespasses and that means to overstep the mark, and we're dead because of sin, which means to fall short and miss the mark altogether. In other words, at heart, we're rebels and failures. We're active and passive. See, philosophically, there have been three main basic views of the human nature. The first is that man is well, right? All we need to do is just have good diet, good exercise, and good education, and we're better. We will better ourselves into eternity, right? We're capable of accomplishing it all, man. As well, the second is that man is sick, right? That we just have problems, and we or we do all that we can to solve them. This is not a hopeless position. We just need the right people and the right resources, and we can almost repair ourselves. But they're both wide of the mark of what the Bible says: we're dead. And if you're dead, there's nothing you can do about your condition. You're unresponsive. You're unable to change it. As it's coronavirus lockdown, Joey and I have been hooking out the old box sets, right? Like a DVD, you know, like an actual DVD. And we've been watching back through Band of Brothers again. And it's an incredible uh, TV series, but there's this incredible scene. Um, early on, we're Lieutenant Spears, who's kind of like this mythical figure, because at one point early on, he, he shoots uh, a, a whole group of prisoners of war who are unarmed, and it's kind of done in cold blood, and he becomes legendary throughout the series. And Spears is, is working with people a little bit after D-Day, and they're panicked, right? They're panicked out of their mind. They're fearful for the position that they're in. And this is what he says. "You see, private, you feel that way because you haven't admitted it to yourself yet. You're dead. And the sooner you can admit that to yourself and live with it, the sooner you can be of some use in this war. And if we are ever going to know the heights of following Jesus, we need to know that we start in the depths. We're dead. And Paul says it's because of sin, sin caused by the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is how the message paraphrases it. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. We let the world, our culture, the outside tell us our values, our worth, our purpose and our meaning, who we are and where we're for. We let our bodies tell us which feelings to entertain and which to go after, we just give in. We let the devil speak lies over who we are, what we're capable of, and where we're for. We listen to them, we believe them, and we act accordingly. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. Here's the thing I just want to say and acknowledge that right now, you and I, we've probably never been more vulnerable. I'd be willing to bet that if you got your phone out now and looked at your screen time, that it'll be up significantly in this moment, that your consumption of social media is up significantly, or even just the almost addictive nature of the news right now, checking in on the world developments non-stop. And with that comes worry, doubt, fear, and disorientation, distracting ourselves to death. And if you're self-isolating... You've probably never had more time on your own in the place where no one sees either. It's easier than ever to listen to what the flesh says about sex, pride, jealousy, porn, whatever you're going to spend your money on when all of this is said and done, yourself, whatever. And when you're self-isolating, never have the lies of the devil went in so easily about yourself, your mental health, your relationships, your provision, the law. We're dead. But God can't leave things that way. Right at the end of verse three, this is what it says. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of (laughs) wrath. Wrath doesn't sound like the most uplifting feature of God to pick out, does it? But here's the way Stott defines it. It's God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. When I was in school, We had a number of headmasters in that time, but one of them I got on with particularly well. He was perhaps the most terrifying man I'd ever met at that stage of my life. He was very tall. He didn't have to, but he continued to wear, you know, like headmasters gowns. So he like filled the corridors. He was one of those people with a booming voice Uh, and he terrified us, right? Except I knew that he liked me. I knew that, right? I played cricket and he coached cricket and he was always interested in how study was going and how my life was and how family was and how sport was and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. When I got things wrong, and I did often, just because he liked me, I knew that he would never let me off the hook. He never settled when it came to me. He never compromised on me. And that's the way God is with us. He never settles. He never compromises on the sin in our lives. He is resolved to put death to death. Being alive, first and foremost, means death. We have to know that we start there, but we don't stay there because death also means love. Paul moves straight from wrath to love with the words but God, okay? Verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, it's a wonder that only the character of God can hold the wrath and the love together, okay? It's an incredible thing that that is who God is, that he holds them together together in himself, and that only he could. And Paul moves quickly from where we were to where we are, right? It's the transition between what we are by nature and what we are by grace. It's the distinction between the human condition and the divine compassion. And at the heart of the transformation in our lives is love. It's mercy. It's grace. God made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him. He did it. It turns out that it's love, his love, that sees us change. But here's the thing, right? I can talk about love lots. I can point us to hundreds of passages that illustrate it, and I can pour in a thousand quotes from people who write about it and sing about it more beautifully and powerfully than I ever could. But love is only truly accepted when it's trusted. The truth is that love is only truly accepted when it's trusted. It's like the age-old battle between who will say, I love you first in a relationship, right? Because there's this sense that you don't wanna say it too soon. You don't wanna say it or to give it away to the other person unless you know that they feel the same and you're gonna get it back, right? That they'll look after it, that they won't mock you or make light of it, that you won't get ignored. And to accept the concept of grace unmerited favour, right? The love of God going out to the totally undeserving. You see, to accept that is to go against the grain of the world in which we live. We're so used to the I'm a good person narrative, aren't we? That comparative thing we do when we look at people that do stuff worse than us, we hold ourselves up on account of just how bad we think somebody else is. Compared to that guy, I'm doing okay. Okay. That all of our striving and our hard work, and this is still rife inside the church, makes us a good person. Almost as if we'd be deserving of the grace that we've received. Almost as if we could live up to it. And we can't. It turns out that to be alive means to be loved and to be loved means to trust I mean, suppose for one second that we were talking one day, you and I, and I said to you, well, I've come to see over the last couple of months that you're a really terrific person, but here's the thing, I don't trust one word you say. You would be devastated, right? It would feel like the most intense rejection and assault on your character, wouldn't it? And yet that's exactly what we do when it comes to God on this one. We evaluate ourselves and others by our own criteria and not God's criteria. God, I believe you're great. I believe that Jesus is real. I just simply cannot trust your word that I can't contribute to being saved. That's what we're doing. And it is love that makes us living. There's this line in the Christmas carol, O Little Town, and it says this, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Meek souls. We have to be meek enough to receive his grace to admit our own weakness and failure, doubt, and inability to do a thing about the state that we're in, to do anything about the fact that we are not like what we would like to be. We are not who we would like to be. And I say trust today because the question is this, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you trust him enough to have dealt with our stuff Do we trust him enough to be our provider and our sustainer? Do we believe that we are who he says we are? Because I so believe that our ability to put faith and trust in who God says he is and who he says we are will dictate how we navigate ourselves through the moment that we're in and where we'll be when all of this is over. In his book, All Things New... Pete Hughes retells a story, it's probably not true, but anyway, about Abraham Lincoln and him visiting a slave auction years before he rose to prominence and became the president of the United States. According to the legend, he stood at the back of the auction and noticed the atmosphere change as a number of slave girls were paraded through the room. It was abundantly clear what these slave girls were going to be used for. And this is what he says. The first slave girl was auctioned and the bids flooded in. Each bid met with cheers. Lincoln was repulsed by what he saw. From the back of the room, he loudly offered his bid, silencing the crowd in the process. His bid went well beyond what the slave girl was worth and well beyond what anybody else could afford. The crowd was stunned. What kind of man would pay that amount of money for a slave girl? It made no sense. The slave girl looked terrified, frightened at the prospect of what such a master would do. The auctioneer closed the bids and pointed the slave girl in the direction of her new master. She made her way to the back of the room with every eye fastened on her. As she approached Lincoln, he looked her in the eye and simply said, young lady, you are free. The crowd leaned in, totally perplexed. She asked what his words meant. It means you are free, he responded. Does that mean, she said, that I can go wherever I want to Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she asked, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, Lincoln replied, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, he replied, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl paused for a moment to take this all in and then with tears streaming down her face, she responded, then I want to go with you. This is the choice we make, to choose to believe the things he says, to choose to trust him, that he is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. And when we trust, when we believe in a love like that, our only response is, then I'll go with you. Alive means death, alive means love. And finally, to be alive means destiny. There's this phrase that you'll hear loads these days, and it's this one, this is what I'm here for, right? Normally it's used in reference to cat videos or sloth videos on social media. I don't get the sloth thing, right? They're grim, totally gross animals. Anyway, people seem to love them. And people will very often comment underneath a video of a sloth climbing up someone's arm, this is what I'm here for, right? Anyway, we use it on this kind of surface, blasé level, like low-key humor. I used it this last week while watching an Insta story of a friend waiting on hold for TalkTalk to respond just endlessly, right? But the truth is it's in here too, isn't it? Like at what times in my life do I put my head or my hands or my heart to something or someone and know that this is what I'm here for? Now we could get into speaking about vocation and purpose, and we'd end up being here all day, right? That's a big one. Let's get into that in person sometime when this virus stuff is all over and we can sit down over coffee and chat. But Paul is saying in verse 10 that we have a corporate yet altogether individual destiny, right? He's saying that there's something in your life that you can truly say of yourself, this is what I'm here for. This is what it says. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And it's this word handiwork that's significant, right? Some of the other translations give it as masterpiece. I can assume that you've been called lots of things in your life, but I'm fairly confident that masterpiece isn't one of them, right? Even in your best moments, your own personal highlight reel, no one's calling you a masterpiece. And yet that's what Paul is saying. He's using the Greek word poema. This is the word that we get the word poem from. But in truth it's much better understood, not as poem, but as any form of artisan product, right? And right now we live in the world of artisan products, don't we? I mean, you've got to go to the aisle in any shop and the most expensive thing is bound to have some sort of provincial town name in front of it. So you get Brockgammon bacon or Five Mile Town cheddar and... Clearly, it's a smaller place, Five Mile Town, so it's clearly superior to Cold Rain Cheddar, right? That's how it works, isn't it? I mean, honestly, you could just make anything and stick some small-time county name on the front of it and you're able to whack the price up. But the reason is that the whole idea is to tell you that it's artisan. We put the small names in the front so that you know it's artisan, to make it more localized, ultimately to make it more personal. So that someone you can see, or even though their name can say, I made this. And that's it. Your destiny, your purpose, the one we all have, and yet one that is uniquely your own, is that people would take a look at the picture of your life and not ask who it is in the picture, but ask who painted it. Who is the artist? Who is the artisan? We are an artist's work. And an artist's work is recognisable, isn't it? Even if the style is different or the medium changes, it is always recognisable as his work. We are all living evidences of his kindness who point people beyond ourselves to the artist. And that's why we don't get into comparison. Even though I know it's tempting right now, even though I know you're probably on social media more than you ever have been Don't get into it, right? Masterpieces don't compare. We are just grateful eternally for the work that he has done. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, we're not just God's handiwork, we're created. This is a repeat message. You are a new creation, it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's important, right? Because everything created needs a creator. And it just so happens that this one is an artisan. This is not, you are not some sort of mass-produced product at the cheapest price possible. This is personal. His hands Made you. His hands continue to make you. You know, I'm so moved in the resurrection narrative when Jesus tells Thomas, look at my hands. Because they're the same hands that created a new creation in him, the ones with the holes in them. That's how personal this was. The same hands that flung stars into space. Those same hands are the hands that are forming you. We're God's handiwork created in the most personal way possible to do good works. Our primary purpose is to display his handiwork to a world that one day will all be recreated. But until he comes, we display what it looks like. And if we just hold still and let God do the work, and if we just hold tight to his promises, to who he says we are and to the way he leads us on. We are to display his handiwork in whatever is the way before us. And there are no periods of isolation from that. You know, just as I finish up today, it struck me during the week That the Louvre is just full of the most incredible pieces of art, right? The most astonishing works from incredible artists from every era, from every corner of the globe. And yet I wonder often when I think about it, or other places that do the same, who displays the artwork? Is it the security guard who lets people in or not on the front door? Is it the curator of the exhibition? Is it the owner of the Louvre? Is it the owner of the art or the guide that shows you around in the end? It doesn't matter because they all do. Their rules, their pay scales, their personalities, they couldn't be more different. But in the end, they all make it possible for us to see the art and in doing so to encounter the artist. That is who we are. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared and advanced for us to do. This is our destiny, our purpose and our living. Alive it means death, it means love and it means destiny.